Chapter 4 of Celebrated Crimes, Volume 3, Mary Stewart. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mary Maxwell. Celebrated Crimes, Volume 3, Mary Stewart by Alexandre Dumas. Chapter 4. Meanwhile, Bothwell had levied some troops, and thought himself in a position to hold the country. Accordingly, he set out with his army, without even waiting for the Hamiltons, who were assembling their vassals, and June 15, 1567, the two opposed forces were face to face. Mary, who desired to try to avoid bloodshed, immediately sent the French ambassador to the Confederate lords to exhort them to lay aside their arms but they replied that the queen deceived herself in taking them for rebels, that they were marching not against her, but against Bothwell. Then the king's friends did what they could to break off the negotiations and give battle. It was already too late. The soldiers knew that they were defending the cause of one man, and that they were going to fight for a woman's caprice, and not for the good of the country. They cried aloud, then, that since Bothwell alone was aimed at, it was for Bothwell to defend his cause. And he, vain and blustering as usual, gave out that he was ready to prove his innocence in person against whomsoever would dare to maintain that he was guilty. Immediately, everyone with any claim to nobility in the rival camp accepted the challenge, and as the honor was given to the bravest, Kirkholdy of Grange, Murray of Tillibardine, and Lord Lindsay of Beers defied him successfully. But be it that courage failed him, be it that in the moment of danger he did not himself believe in the justice of his cause, he, to escape the combat, sought such strange pretexts that the queen herself was ashamed, and his most devoted friends murmured. Then Mary, perceiving the fatal humor of men's minds, decided not to run the risk of a battle. She sent a herald to Kirkholdy of Grange, who was commanding an outpost, and as he was advancing without distrust to converse with the queen, Bothwell, enraged at his own cowardice, ordered a soldier to fire upon him, but this time Mary herself interposed, forbidding him under the pain of death to offer the least violence. In the meanwhile, as the imprudent order given by Bothwell spread through the army, such murmurs burst forth that he clearly saw that his cause was forever lost. That is what the Queen thought also, for the result of her conference with Lord Kirkcaldy was that she should abandon Bothwell's cause and pass over into the camp of the Confederates, on condition that they would lay down their arms before her and bring her as queen to Edinburgh. Kirkcaldy left her to take these conditions to the nobles and promised to return the next day with a satisfactory answer. But at the moment of leaving Bothwell, Mary was seized again with that fatal love for him that she was never able to surmount, and felt herself overcome with such weakness that, weeping bitterly and before everyone, she wanted Kirkcaldy to be told that she broke off all negotiations. However, as Bothwell had understood that he was no longer safe in camp, it was he who insisted that things should remain as they were, and leaving Mary in tears, he mounted and set it off at full speed. He did not stop till he reached Dunbar. Next day, at the time appointed, the arrival of Lord Kirkcaldy of Grange was announced by the trumpeters preceding him. Mary mounted directly and went to meet him. Then, as he alighted to greet her, my lord, she said, I surrender to you on the conditions that you have proposed to me on the part of the nobles, and here is my hand as a sign of entire confidence. 
Kirkaldy then knelt down, kissed the queen's hand respectfully, and rising, he took her horse by the bridle and led it towards the Confederate's camp. Everyone of any rank in the army received her with such marks of respect as entirely to satisfy her, but it was not so at all with the soldiers and common people. Hardly had the queen reached the second line, formed by them, that great murmurs arose, and several voices cried, To the stake, the adulteress! To the stake, the parricide! However, Mary bore these outrages stoically enough, but a more terrible trial yet was in store for her. Suddenly she saw rise before her a banner, on which was depicted on one side the king, dead and stretched out in the fatal garden, and on the other the young prince kneeling, his hands joined and his eyes raised to heaven with the inscription, O oh Lord, judge and revenge my cause. Mary reined in her horse abruptly at this sight and wanted to turn back, but she had scarcely moved a few paces when the accusing banner again blocked her passage. Wherever she went, she met this dreadful apparition. For two hours she had incessantly under her eyes the king's corpse asking for vengeance, and the young prince, her son, praying God to punish the murderers. At last she could endure it no longer, and, crying out, she threw herself back, having completely lost consciousness, and would have fallen if someone had not caught hold of her. In the evening she entered Edinburgh, always preceded by the cruel banner, and she already had rather the air of a prisoner than of a queen, for, not having a moment during the day to attend to her toilet, her hair was falling in disorder about her shoulders, her face was pale and showed traces of tears, and finally her clothes were covered with dust and mud. As she proceeded through the town, the hootings of the people and the curses of the crowd followed her. At last, half dead with fatigue, worn out with grief, bowed down with shame, she reached the house of the Lord Provost. But scarcely had she got there when the entire population of Edinburgh crowded into the square with cries that from time to time assumed a tone of terrifying menace. Several times, then, Mary wished to go to the window, hoping that the sight of her, which she had so often proved the influence, would disarm this multitude. But each time she saw this banner unfurling itself like a bloody curtain between herself and the people, a terrible rendering of their feelings. However, all this hatred was meant still more for Bothwell than for her. They were pursuing Bothwell and Darnley's widow. The curses were for Bothwell. Bothwell was the adulterer. Bothwell was the murderer. Bothwell was the coward, while Mary was the weak, fascinated woman who that same evening gave a fresh proof of her folly. In fact, directly the falling night had scattered the crowd and a little quiet was regained, Mary, ceasing to be uneasy on her own account, turned immediately to Bothwell, whom she had been obliged to abandon and who was now proscribed and fleeing, while she, as she believed, was about to reassume her title and station of queen. With that eternal confidence of the woman in her own love, by which she invariably measures the love of another, she thought that Bothwell's greatest distress was to have lost, not wealth and power, but to have lost herself. So she wrote him a long letter, in which, forgetful of herself, she promised him with the most tender expressions of love never to desert him, and to recall him to her directly with the breaking up of the Confederate lords should give her power to do so. Then, this letter written, she called a soldier, gave him a purse of gold, and charged him to take this letter to Dunbar, where Bothwell ought to be, and if he were already gone, to follow him until he came up with him. 
Then she went to bed and slept more calmly, for, unhappy as she was, she believed she had just sweetened misfortunes still greater than hers. Next day the queen was awakened by the step of an armed man who entered her room. Both astonished and frightened at this neglect of propriety, which could augur nothing good, Mary sat up in bed, and parting the curtains, saw standing before her Lindsay of Beers. She knew he was one of her oldest friends, so she asked him in a voice which she vainly tried to make confident what he wanted of her at such a time. "'Do you know this writing, madam?' Lord Lindsay asked in a rough voice, presenting to the queen the letter she had written to Bothwell at night, which the soldier had carried to the Confederate lords instead of taking it to its address. "'Yes, doubtless, my lord,' the queen answered. "'But am I already a prisoner, then, that my correspondence is intercepted?' or is it no longer allowed to a wife to write to her husband? When the husband is a traitor, replied Lindsay, no, madam, it is no longer allowed to a wife to write to her husband, at least, however, if this wife have a part in his treason, which seems to me, besides, quite proved by the promise you make to this wretch to recall him to you. My lord, cried Mary, interrupting Lindsay, do you forget that you are speaking to your queen? There was a time, madam, Lindsay replied, when I should have spoken to you in a more gentle voice, and bending the knee, although it is not in the nature of us old Scotch to model ourselves on your French courtiers. But for some time, thanks to your changing loves, you have kept us so often in the field, in harness, that our voices are hoarse from the cold night air, and our stiff knees can no longer bend in our armor. You must then take me just as I am, madam, since today, for the welfare of Scotland, you are no longer at liberty to choose your favorites. Mary grew frightfully pale at this want of respect, to which she was not yet accustomed, but quickly containing her anger as far as possible. But still, my lord, she said, however disposed I may be to take you as you are, I must at least know by what right you come here. That letter which you are holding in your hand would lead me to think it is as a spy, if the ease with which you enter my room without being asked did not make me believe it as a jailer. Have the goodness, then, to inform me by which of these two names I must call you. Neither by one nor the other, madam, for I am simply your fellow traveler, chief of the escort which is to take you to Loch Leven Castle, your future residence. And yet, scarcely have I arrived here, than I shall be obliged to leave you to go and assist the Confederate lords choose a regent for the kingdom. So, Mary said, it is as a prisoner and not as a queen that I surrendered to Lord Kirkcaldy. It seems to me that things were agreed upon otherwise, but I am glad to see how much time Scotch noblemen need to betray their sworn undertakings. Your grace forgets that these engagements were made on one condition, Lindsay answered. On which, Mary asked, that you should separate forever from your husband's murderer. And there is the proof, he added, showing the letter that you have forgotten your promise before we thought of revoking ours. And at what o'clock is my departure fixed, said Mary, whom this discussion was beginning to fatigue. At eleven o'clock, madam. It is well, my lord, as I have no desire to make your lordship wait. You will have the goodness in withdrawing to send me someone to help me dress, unless I am reduced to wait upon myself. And in pronouncing these words, Mary made a gesture so imperious that whatever may have been Lindsay's wish to reply, he bowed and went out. Behind him enter Mary Satan. End of chapter 4